right. Welcome back. This is Jay Martson, and my guest today is Justin Hewn of Uranium Insider. Justin, it's good to see you again. You as well, Jay. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. I'm excited to uh, to run a few different directions with you today. And uh, first of all, here's my first question, Justin. Does nuclear power have the ability to solve the uranium energy crisis? I think it has a really unique ability to solve the green energy crisis. Um, the fact that it is, besides uh, hydroelectricity, it's it's the only carbon-free baseload. I suppose geothermal, but that makes up such a small percentage of the overall um, energy mix. Um, yes, in my opinion, uh, I mean it has its challenges. You know, it it's, tends to be um, expensive to build. A, a lot of upfront costs, a lot of sunk costs in the actual construction of the plant. Um, lead times for construction, depending on where it's being built and who is doing the building, can be uh, longer than some might desire, but it has some fantastic benefits. It's obviously, it's baseload power. It's 24-7. It's highly, highly efficient. You have actual capacity factors you know, of efficiency of operations, 80 to 90% compared with um, solar and wind, which sometimes can be down uh, even below 20% efficiency in terms of their actual operable capacity. Um, when it's when the sun is shining and there's no clouds and when the wind is blowing, um, it has it's 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 clean energy. So not only is there no carbon, there's no emissions whatsoever. Um, the only waste product is the actual spent nuclear fuel, which is stored safely. There's never been an accident of any kind with stored uh, nuclear waste. Um, some in some cases that nuclear waste is recycled. So I think the concern about waste is overstated uh, to a huge degree. Um, they're, they're very long lived assets. So even though a plant might take five, six, seven years to build in some cases, um, and uh, you know, a few billion dollars plus they can last for 60, 80, even up to a hundred years, potentially of, of on always on baseload, green energy, clean power. So I think that it really ticks a lot of boxes. And now with this, uh, growing energy and enthusiasm, and innovation around small modular reactors and advanced nuclear, quote unquote, advanced nuclear. Um, we're seeing, you know, news stories every single day about a new country adopting, um, you know, signing a letter of intent or a, a, a or an MOU with an SMR SMR builder to uh, build a prototype. Um, so this is gaining a lot of steam. China is actually building one right now. There's about a dozen prototypes uh, uh, in the works in at the Idaho National Labs, in the United States. Um, Rolls-Royce is building them, uh, uh, GE is building them. And then there's, there's dozens and dozens of companies that are, have very innovative designs from, you know, one or two, one or two megawatts up to, uh, you know, three, four, 500 megawatts, about half the size of a normal, uh, large reactor. So it's, uh, it's an exciting space and there seems to be a lot of positive momentum here for nuclear with, with that in mind. There seems to be now. You know, there's there's a big energy crisis occurring in Europe right now, right? And this is happening in real time. Households are forecasted to have in the UK forecasted to have their utility bills go up by eighty percent uh, by October first. Businesses are seeing like five to ten x increases in their energy bills, which puts a lot of them out of business and creates a bit of an insolvency crisis, at least in the small sort of you know um, thin margined ma and pa shops, cafes, and all this stuff. A lot of people point to nuclear as, you know, what's going to fix this, right? This is going to fix the problem that Germany's facing this winter, that UK is facing this winter. And I agree that eventually it could play that role, but the timeline is completely unrealistic. 
Um, so when people jump in and say, actually, Europe doesn't need Russian oil and gas because nuclear is going to swoop in and save the day, maybe France, maybe, although France seems to be seeing the same challenges as every other European country, but like, how, how realistic is that rebuttal that, oh, don't worry about Europe will be just fine because of nuclear? And my answer is maybe one day, but when? Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of the classic, you know, the best time to build a nuclear plant was 20 years ago, and the second best time is now. Um, you know, I think for the emerging crisis that's uh, that's presently hitting the UK and Germany and France and much of much of Europe, really, in terms of energy costs, you know, the best thing that can happen really is the existing plants can be operating as efficiently and with, enough, with as much capacity as possible, and plants that are set to come offline should remain online. So... Um, you know, France, France has been operating their fleet at about half capacity and uh, their nuclear fleet this year. And that's, there's a multiple multitude of reasons for that. The primary reason has to do with the fact that up until last year, um, when Macron just kind of reversed their, their, their planned phase out of their reactors. So a number of the reactors in France were set to come offline. I believe it was 2025 and they reviewed that plan, uh, last year and decided to extend those to 2030, 2035. <clears throat> But that plan to eventually phase out or reduce the reliance on nuclear um, from the previous decade, that reversed. But because that plan had been in place, there was underinvestment in a lot of the reactors in terms of maintenance and upkeep. And so a lot, a number of the reactors were offline, are still offline due to maintenance um, and, and safety upgrades. There was a number of issues with corrosion, et cetera. But we just saw last week that the that EDF announced that all of the reactors that are currently offline due to maintenance issues will be operating by the winter. And that's important. And hopefully they can stick to that timeline. But it's certainly been a problem this year for France. And France is actually the largest exporter of electricity on the planet. Uh, and so the fact that France's nuclear fleet was operating at half capacity uh, did not do a fair very well for their neighbors. Um, Germany, of course, is against all odds still planning on decommissioning their last three reactors this December. It makes absolutely zero sense. They've stress tested the reactors. They're perfectly fine to continue operating. Um, they've claimed that they couldn't get the nuclear fuel on time. That was They were caught in a lie with that statement. They absolutely can. So um, they're sticking with that agenda, even though their populace is paying record high energy prices and it has pulled back a little bit over the past week or two, but still unbelievably high prices. But what we are seeing is the UK embrace new nuclear builds. France is still planning on building new nuclear in addition to the life extensions that they gave a lot of their fleet when that announcement last year. Um, we are seeing Belgium and Switzerland both uh, have uh, certain political parties within these countries want to extend the lives of their nuclear reactors and reverse course on their nuclear phase out. And so there are definitely positive signs in Europe around at very least maintaining and extending the lives of the reactors that are currently operating um, for obvious reasons. And then we're seeing a number of countries that are embracing new builds. And a lot of these are SMRs. Romania is looking at SMRs. I believe um, there was another country this morning. I'm forgetting what it was. It might've been Czech Republic. Um, UK is looking at SMRs and large reactors, France, both SMRs and large reactors. So there's plenty of countries within uh, the EU that are looking at expanding nuclear. And then if you if you look outside of the EU, countries that may not yet be seeing uh, massive energy costs like, like Europe is, um, South Korea, for example, they had been planning on phasing out nuclear and with the new president, 
completely reverse course on that. Not only are they are they canceling their phase out plans and extending their existing reactors, they're planning on building new ones. And the South Koreans are are brilliant at building nuclear plants. They do, um, you know, they they built the uh, Baraka plant in in UAE, and they and that's a really big reactor. And they knocked that out. I think it was a five year build, and they did it on budget. Um, just brilliant, and they can and they can really really do well with that. So, and then of course Japan, um, still needing to to restart around twenty more reactors in the next seven yeah. years to meet their goals. So, it's certainly being embraced. Um, it's definitely disappointing news with with Germany. I mean, it's only three reactors. It doesn't really move the needle a lot in terms of supply and demand and all that. But it's such an obvious. I mean, these these reactors are they're they're beautiful. They're spotless. They have. Um, you know, they have the crew to operate them. They can get the fuel. They've already stress tested. It's, it's totally set and they're refusing to do it. So I don't really know what to say about that other than it's a shining example of what not to do. And we've seen uh, that example play out right now. Um, they were warned by numerous people over the years to not be too reliant on Russian gas. The 500 plus billion dollars that have gone into solar and wind has been uh, mostly a failure. It's just too large of a percentage of their grid because when the sun's not shining, the wind's not blowing, they have to have baseload that can easily cycle up and down to make up for that intermittency. And so that baseload comes from coal and it comes from natural gas. It comes from biomass, which yeah. Doomberg wrote a brilliant article last month on the, the biomass, the green biomass energy in Germany. And essentially they're burning wood pellets um, to create electricity from trees being cut down in the United States and shipped across the ocean. So that's Germany's green energy for you. Yeah. Okay. A lot there I want to unpack. Uh, first and foremost, I did not know that France was the largest exporter of electricity in the world. And that number was with them operating at 50% of their capacity. Did I understand that part correctly? Um, no, not they definitely have reduced their exports based on the reduced uh, operational capacity of their fleet Got this it. year. Just um, on an average year, they are the largest exporter of electricity. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, you know, a lot of what you just shared, France is going to increase that capacity moving forward, right? They've got some ambitious goals by this winter. Countries like Romania are looking at SMR build outs, right? You mentioned Japan restarting 20 of their reactors. So, uh, you know, I'm curious what you can share about current uranium consumption, for, for example, or I guess nuclear consumption, for example, I believe one in five homes in, in the United States rely on nuclear power, right? Correct. Is it something like 70% of the electricity in France is derived from nuclear power? Correct. Like what, what are some numbers you can share in terms of current consumption, just so I can get a sense of what this increase is going to do to the demand? And then we can talk about the supply a little bit. So in terms of like current consumption of nuclear power, what are some numbers that you pay attention to, Justin? I mean, honestly, the numbers I'm paying attention to most uh, right now are the numbers that are being calculated based on the market bifurcating um, Russia, non-Russia in terms of all elements of the fuel cycle. I think that's really that's really the most important thing, I think, to understand, especially for the short and the midterm. For the long term, you know, the the, the classical thesis of being long uranium and long nuclear has to do with the sector being a growth sector and there being an existing and expanding deficit in supply. Um, with the sector growing, you know, China is building 21 reactors, 21 reactors under construction in China right now, China, 21. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's monumental. There's uh, 50, I believe 54 under construction globally. Um, and there's hundreds in the, in the planning phase. And those are large reactors, not just uh, SMRs. 
So SMRs is a whole nother element to the demand story that is not currently really baked into supply and demand modeling. So if you were to if, to make a projection out to the late 2020s, um, any of the modeling that I've seen, you know, because it hasn't happened yet, we, you can't really model in for demand that's not necessarily there yet. But this has uh, the potential to really, I mean, the SMRs that may or may not come online towards the end of the decade into the early 2030s, they could very well be the buyer on the margin. I mean, they could be the, you know, if, if, the, if the larger reactors, um, and this is also assuming we have mines that are even in the early stages of development coming online towards the end of the decade, that the buyers on the margin could be these SMRs and they need less, uh, they need less fuel overall, but they operate on higher, um, higher enriched uranium. So, um, as a, as a percentage based on their, their output of electricity, they do need more uranium. But with all of that said, really the, the supply demand numbers that I'm looking at right now have to do with the West versus the East. So let's say the OECD countries versus the BRICS nations. Um, and essentially the way that I'm looking at it right now is that around 70% of the world's nuclear reactors are in the West and only about 40% of the world's enrichment capacity is in the West. And so I'm sure your, your, your listeners are, and your, and your viewers are, are pretty familiar probably with the basics of the fuel cycle, but uranium mined out of the ground can't just go in the reactor. It has to be uh, mildly processed into, into U308 or yellow cake, and then has to be converted into a gas in order to be enriched in the centrifuge. So that conversion process uh, turns it into UF6, uranium hexafluoride. That goes into uh, a centrifuge at an enricher um, where it's spun to separate the isotopes. And, um, and then that enriched uranium is fabricated into fuel or it's, it's, it's deconverted uh, back into solid form and then it's fabricated into fuel. And the fabricated fuel is unique to, e to each reactor design. So <clears throat> Russia is by far the largest player in the enrichment, in the enrichment space. So they, they're about 40% of global enrichment capacity, huge, major, major provider of enrichment. And over the last decade or so, there's been an oversupply of enrichment um, there has been less of demand of enrichment because of um, a general oversupply of uranium over the previous decade. And so that excess capacity for enrichment, both in Russia and the world at large, enrichers have been able to do something called uh, underfeeding. And so basically what that is, is when a nuclear utility signs an enrichment contract with an enricher, they, there's a couple of details that they need to get into this into, into the formula for that contract. And so one is how much of the enriched uranium they need in terms of uh, KGU and what is the enrichment level for the U-235, the FISA isotope. And that's typically for the average, you know, light water reactor, four and a half percent, let's say 4.4, 4.5, 4.6. And the natural uranium, the UF-6 that comes in is 0.7%. U-235. So it has to be enriched up to four and a half percent in order to be fabricated into fuel for the reactor's needs. I know this is kind of long-winded, but it's an important point. So when uh, when the utility signs that contract with the enricher, how much EUP uh, enriched uranium product, how much EUP do they need? What's the enrichment level? And what is the tails assay for that process? So the waste material from the enrichment process, the tails, the amount of U-235 that remains in the tails is the tails assay and that dictates two things that dictates how quickly that uh feedstock the uf6 will be able to be enriched into the end product the eup 
and it dictates how much feed. So the 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 lower the tail's assay, the more SWU, the more energy, a separative work unit, the more energy for that enrichment process is needed, and the less feed stock because you're you're basically spinning it longer for a longer period of time to separate those isotopes. So over the past, especially the past five, six years, but really the past decade plus, enrichers have had excess capacity due to reduced demand. And what they've been able to do is sign a contract with a nuclear utility, let's say at 0.2 tails assay, the nuclear utility has to provide to the enricher the feed stock based on that calculation. So if they need four and a half percent enrichment, they need a certain amount of KGU. Mm -hmm. At 0.2 tails assay, that dictates how much feed stock they have to send to the enricher. But if the enricher has ex excess capacity, they can actually spin that down to 0.18, mm -hmm. 0.17, mm -hmm. meaning they need less feed to go yeah. into that centrifuge. They underfeed the centrifuge. Well, that process at global enrichment facilities has led to an excess of around 20 to 25 million pounds per year of UF6 in excess that gets sold into the spot market. That's underfeeding. That's a cigar lake and a half right there. That's a huge, that's the biggest mine in the world, essentially, is the underfeeding from enrichers being sold into the spot market and to carry traders. So this has been an absolute boon for nuclear utilities. It's been cheap. It's been abundant. That right now essentially is gone as far as Western utilities are concerned because the Russians will probably continue to underfeed. A lot of that material stays in Russia and or will be sold to uh, to uh, nuclear utilities in the East. China, yeah. India, Brazil, yeah. you know, Argentina and Mexico probably continue to buy South Africa, et cetera. But the Western enrichers are having to raise those tails assays substantially because they're seeing huge new demand coming from the Western nuclear utilities. Mm -hmm. So long, very long story short, the rising tails assays in the Western enrichers is creating a situation where they have to overfeed the centrifuges. So they have these legacy contracts with nuclear utilities, let's say at 0 0.18, 0 0.19, 0 0.2 tails assay. They've already risen those tails assays to 0 0.24, 0 0.25, and the enrichers have to go out into the market and buy excess UF6 to cover that overfeeding. On top of that, these new contracts that are being signed at much higher tails assays require far, far more uranium inputs on the front end because they're needing to create more EUP faster. And the only way to do that is to bump up those tails assays. And that requires much more uranium on the front end. Mm. So mm. the big picture from all of this is underfeeding essentially has gone to Western utilities. That's let's just call it 20 million pounds. There's still some coming from Russia that's going to be sold to the East. There's some coming from China, most likely that probably stays in China. Mm -hmm. Um, but as far as the West is concerned, we're talking about 20 million pounds-ish of supply that's gone. And we're talking about a swing in demand of potentially 10 to 20 million more pounds. So we're talking about a, at a minimum, a 30 million pound per year swing in demand and supply. So this is absolutely massive because on top of all of that currently, Let's say, take a snapshot of 2022, we're looking at about 170, 175 million pounds of U-308 equivalent in demand from global nuclear utilities. And we're looking at about 135 million pounds actually mined out of the ground. Okay. So some secondary supply will continue to exist. And that, like I mentioned, that's going to stay in the East, but the bulk of the demand, the bulk of the nuclear generation in the world is in the West and not enough enrichment. And the only way until the West builds more enrichment capacity 
the only way for enrichers in the West to meet the demand of the nuclear utilities in the West is to bump up those tails assays and overfeed. So this situation that's happening right now is likely to continue until more capacity is built out. That takes time, takes a lot of money. Um, right now, there's about 26 million SWU in the Western world. Uh, that's enrichment capacity. It's about a billion and a half dollars to to build out a million SWU. So if they wanted to bump up, you know, twenty uh, percent capacity in 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 the West, it's going to be a, a decent um, a decent chunk of change. And they're the utilities are going to have to sign the nuclear utilities are going to have to sign enrichment contracts in order to secure um, the funding for the enrichers to to actually build out that capacity. So. I know that's a complex uh, set of variables to try to understand, but it's important to understand that uh, the swing, the swing in how nuclear utilities in the West are operating right now, and what they're having to do and how they're having to contract, is a big, big change from the previous decade, and it happened like that. And so there's a lot of action in the back end of the fuel cycle. We can talk about that more if you want. Yeah, no, and I really appreciate that, and I imagine a lot of my viewers. Uh you know, are pretty versed uranium investors, probably up to speed about what you just shared. I'm not one of those. I really appreciate what you just explained. And I'm going to probably, to be honest with you, rewatch this to get a more thorough grasp of, of that process. Why has, I mean, is, is it due to the complexity? Because the uranium supply and demand economics are far more complex than like copper, for example. It's a lot more nuanced. Uh, there's a lot less visibility a number of reasons but you know i wonder if that complexity is is one of the reasons if not the core reason that despite these developments the uranium market hasn't really responded much right is that lag due to the complexity of the supply and demand economics or what are your thoughts justin um are you talking about the equities or are you talking about u308 the commodity well well both i mean one feeds the other sure um well the u308 commodity is actually up decently this year um, it's up, I think, something around 20%, 25%. The long-term price is up a little bit more than that. Um, but relative to conversion and enrichment, UF6 in spot EUP, um, all of the back end of the fuel cycle is up substantially. You know, We have uh, conversion and enrichment are up over 100% um, this year alone. So the costs for the back end of the fuel cycle have essentially doubled, um, according to the price reporters. And the price reporters are not yet reporting a bifurcated market. So because the bulk, if not, you know, probably most, if not all of their of their clientele are Western nuclear utilities. So that's the market that they're dealing in. Um, and the reason that I honestly, I think the reason the equities have, let's say, underperformed the movements of the back end of the fuel cycle has everything to do with just the the macro environment we've been subject to this year. And there's been massive, massive wealth destruction across markets this year, whether it's crypto, whether it's the NASDAQ, whether it's the ARK fund, um, you know, Facebook, whatever it might be. I mean, there's been what, 30, 35 trillion wiped out in 2022. And so, you know, we've been coupled with that on and off. Right now, we happen to be in a moment, at least at the time of this recording, uh, the first week of September here. We're you know two three weeks into a pretty significant outperformance of the broad market, and it seems like there's kind of a renewed strength and interest in the equities. So that's good to see. But um, to your point, if you actually chart, and I don't know if you want, I can actually share uh, share my screen and show a chart yeah. if you're interested. Let's do it. Let's see. Okay. All right, you can see that. Okay. I can. Yep. Okay, so this is URNM relative to the spot price of uranium. 
So if you if this this horizontal line I've drawn I've drawn here basically is going back to the beginning of the bull market. This is December 2020 mm -hmm. when the equities really took off. Yeah. Now granted, uranium was considerably lower there. It was thirty two dollars a pound right around there, and right now we're sitting at about fifty dollars a pound spot uranium. So uranium is definitely up substantially. It's up what uh, 60 percent since the bull market started. So that's pretty significant. Of course, we've had substantial inflation over the past two years. So you got to factor that into where, you know, the price targets for the actual commodity are going to go. But you can see that we went risk off, you know, pretty much the bulk of this year. We had a decent run, um, but that moved along with the spot price. That was, uh, you know, February through April. So this chart on a relative basis actually declined. Then July, we had such a, such a large pullback in the equities um, while the spot price remained firm in the summer. And that's something, you know, typically you see the spot price pull back in the summertime. That didn't happen this year. So we were back at valuations in July relative to the commodity that back at the same valuations um, as the beginning of the bull market. Right. So we, we kind of got a reset on this trade in a lot of ways because some of this stuff that's, I mean, especially what I just discussed with the bifurcated market, you know, Russia and non-Russia, that didn't exist in 2020. Um, you know, this energy crisis didn't exist in 2020. Japan accelerating the restarts didn't exist in 2020. Um, the United States putting out $30 billion over the next 10 years to support uh, reactor shutdowns from uh, keeping the, these reactors online, extending their lifetimes. That didn't exist in 2020. So the setup is arguably different. Mm -hmm. It's arguably far, far better. Mm -hmm. And we had this big reset with the risk off this environment. So, you know, a lot of the you know, I talked to, uh, I have some great contacts in the sector that I built up over the years. And some of these are, you know, the, the nuclear focused funds. These guys are the sharpest in the space. You know, I'm talking about the Segra guys and the Station Cove guys. And and they were breathing fire this summer. I mean, they were so, uh, so excited to see the risk go off to that extent and see these valuations back. And I was a big buyer when we started to hit these levels back in July. Um, and now we're going into a season that's very, very strong for uranium typically and that's on average it doesn't happen every year but yeah. this year the reason i believe that we're going to see a strong seasonal period uh probably for the bulk of the remainder of this year now that's of course with the big caveat that if we see major downdrafts in the broad market we're probably going to get coupled with that at least for the short term sure so there's always that risk but um you know i, I mentioned the enrichment the conversion price is really going through the roof and the reasons for that is all these western utilities are now trying to secure enrichment contracts with Western enrichers, which is why the tails assays are rising. The overfeeding has already started, mm -hmm. but that demand does, it must trickle down to U308. It's not theoretical. It's, this is not a thesis. This happens. So when you're a nuclear utility and you sign that contract with Uranco and they say, okay, we're going to provide this much EUP uh, at your desired 4.4% enrichment. And we're going to start those deliveries in 2026 to 2030. And we're going to sign that at 0.3 tails assay. That kicks out a number of how much UF6 you need to provide to them. And the fact that there is zero UF6 out there right now, just sitting above ground, you know, mobile inventory, there's very, very, very little of UF6 available to the West um, sitting in above ground mobile inventory. You, the, the, the utilities have to buy U308. And yes, they have bought U308 over the years. There have been some long-term contracts, but this really is, is lighting a fire into the long-term contracting market for U308. So that demand from these enrichment conversion contracts 
it does and it must come to the U308. And so we're expecting very strong demand to hit U308. I mean, it honestly can happen at any time now. How much of that will hit the spot market is kind of unclear. Spot market tends to kind of be its own thing, especially with the prevalence of SPUT now with the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Uh-huh. But um, term contracts were already at uh, 75 million pounds signed this year, long-term contracts for U308. Uh-huh. Um, I think we'll easily breach 100 million pounds by the end of the year. That'll be the first year since 2012 that we'll have 100 million pounds signed in long-term contracts. I believe that'll happen this year. So I think we're really on the verge of a very, very strong long-term contracting cycle for uranium. And that's been kind of the thing that, uh, you know, the old school, the Mike Alkins of the world from Sachem Cove, you know, you go back and, and look at videos that he recorded talks that he did in 2017, 2018. And that, that was kind of the thesis back then was utilities have been topping up inventories, buying on the spot market, buying from carry traders, and they really haven't come back in force into long-term contracting. And when they do, it's going to be strong because you'll have this period of restocking. There's been essentially inventory drawdown and destocking for years. Um, and there's been, you know, they've been able to top up those inventories in that short-term buying. And they, that's just not available. It's just not there right now. So they have to long-term contract. And typically when that happens, they restock um, inventories. They buy more than they need, essentially, is what they do when when there's a perceived shortage of supply. And that's, you know, it's like it takes a long time for a for a, a, a shipping tanker to do a 180-degree turn in this market. You know, it moves very slowly. And what's happening right now in the bifurcation is is hitting, it's hitting instantly to these nuclear utilities. So very, very exciting setup. Now, I know you are hesitant to share individual stock picks because you have a paid newsletter where you do that. However, what can you share, Justin, about where you're allocating capital right now in terms of company stage or jurisdiction, anything like that? Maybe you're talking to somebody who's uh, just looking for their first and maybe, you know, a sort of anchor uranium position and then a couple of speculations. Like, where do you advise or where are you allocating capital right now? Sure. Well, I think that unless you, you know, look pretty substantially into the individual companies and do that work, I think it's probably safest safest to buy ETFs. Um, the URNM Sprott ETF uh, is probably the best. It's 100% allocated to uranium equities. Um, if you need slightly better liquidity, you can go into URA, but it has a little bit less leverage. Since the bull market started, URNM has outperformed URA. Um, the spot vehicle, if you want to go the safest route, just to expose yourself to the commodity itself. Um, excellent liquidity. You can buy it on the TSX uh, in both US and Canadian dollars. You can buy it on the OTC in the American market, but you'll get better liquidity in TSX. That's a good route. Um, you know, we're sitting here at $50 uranium and it's trading right around NAV. So I really like, I prefer to buy that when it's trading at a discount. We had a persistent discount for the past few months and probably not, unless we see a massive influx of funds, it's not going to trade at a huge premium because when it does, they issue shares in the market. Uh, to raise cash to buy uranium so it, it adds some selling pressure when they when they have that atm running but you know i think i think that's probably a you know i, I always feel like i sound irresponsible saying this it's probably a pretty safe double but at the very least it's a it's a decent um risk reward proposition with the spot vehicle because i think the downside for the actual price of uranium is minimal here maybe 10 to 15 20% at the most. And I don't even really know what would cause that, but the upside. So to take a, a 15% downside, hundred percent upside, that's pretty good. 
As far as the individual stocks go, you know, we really like companies that have individual catalysts. So we have our own process of, of looking into each company, looking at the balance sheet, looking at the shares outstanding, the outstanding warrants and options and the overall share structure is really important. That's something we look at closely. Um, we look obviously at insider ownership and the free flow to the stock. That's important. That can really drastically affect how a stock moves. Um, we look at jurisdiction. We don't like to make jurisdiction bets. Um, but most importantly, above all else, is an understanding of where the company's at and where they're going. What are their plans for the coming years? What are the likely catalysts that the company is going to have during this bull market? And in an ideal situation, those catalysts hit in the bull market. But if for whatever reason, the bull market doesn't go the way we expect, the company can still progress with their plans and their individual catalysts and be an outperformer. So there's been drastic outperformers. Uh, over the past, let's say five year period, um, even a shorter period of time. I mean, if you go back to March, 2020, you know, the COVID crash, which was the low for a lot of the equities, um, some stocks are maybe up two or three X and some stocks are up 10 to 15 plus X. And so there's, yes, the rising tide has lifted all boats, but you can really get uh, extra leverage by choosing wisely. And on top of that, we provide to, to the members of the newsletter, some um, what we feel are intelligently structured options trades. We like uh, vertical call spreads. So we we have one on right now that's going to roll off in January and probably going to pay out. Um, you know, that's that will return close to a triple on a 30-ish percent move for the underlying stock. So we like that kind of leverage with defined risk. And that's something we provide to our members as well. Look, Justin, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Jay. Anytime. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.